Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome inside the Celtics Lab podcast. We're here today with special guest professor of law and Jeremy, excuse me, Jeremy Duru um, of American University's Washington College of Law and author of Sports Law and Regulation, Cases and Materials, The Business of Sports Agents, and Advancing the Ball, Race, Reformation, and the Quest for Equal Coaching Opportunity in the NFL. To talk about the NBA's commitment to racial justice at the Disney Restart. Welcome, Professor Duru. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Justin. Always. So a couple of different things. The combination of the pandemic, the the killing of George Floyd, and the NBA's need to finish its season to avoid severe financial impacts created by a perfect storm, really, to advance racial justice issues in a majority Black uh, sports league, uh, both internally and in society at large. Um, I'm just wondering, um, what's your thoughts on this situation, Dr. Duro? Um, obviously, we're in unprecedented waters here. You know, I mean, this is like nothing we've ever seen. The uh, <clears throat> the pandemic is what once in a century, uh, and hopefully, the, hopefully, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, and this um, this moment with respect to racial justice, maybe three times in a century. I mean, we, you know, we you know we experienced this. I think something of this. Um, scope in the 60s maybe uh 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 you know in the in the 20s and then the reconstruction period before that so this is a we are in a, an incredible moment here and uh obviously all sports leagues but the nba included have to figure out how to exist in this brave new world as a racial matter and to do it within the uh the strictures of um this other brave new world where we're trying to live, you know, with this pandemic. So it's an extraordinary moment. Uh, all sports leagues are dealing with it. Um, the NBA, because their season's coming up now, um, you know, they're right on the forefront along with major league soccer and the NHL and, and uh, major league baseball. The NFL has a few months to sit and watch and see how things develop, I think. So a little bit less deep of a question. Are you an NBA fan? I am. No, I'm an NBA fan. I mean, I grew up uh, in Washington, D.C. cheering for the old Bullets when they were the Bullets, um, and they now become the Wizards, and I'm still I'm still a Wizards fan. Also a college basketball fan, University of Maryland fan. I didn't go there for school, but I grew up in the D.C. area. I grew up in the era of Len Bias. He was like a hero to all of us. Um, and so as much pain as you all felt up in Boston, I it's hard to express how much we felt. I was a young kid, I don't know, pre-adolescent when he passed away. And um, it, was, it just jarred the whole area. I remember exactly where I was when I found out the news that Len Bias had died. And so 
Um, bit of a tangent there, but you know. It, no, it's actually a very good tangent because it touches on something that I, I wanted to kind of dive into for the more serious stuff. And that would be the difference between symbolic and structural uh, interventions that the, the league is going to try to undertake a little bit of both. Um, and, you know, bias, bias situation, I won't say it was necessarily a good intervention, but I mean, his death in, instituted a policy, it's kind of a reactionary policy towards um, people being culpable for the drug use of people they sell drugs to, um, at least in the state of Maryland. I think it might have been a federal law, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, I mean, that would be an example of, of structural, structural interventions, but maybe you could give us your, your opinion or your understanding of the two differences. Yeah, so um, both are important. Symbolism is important and structural change is also important. So um, moving from the Len Bias example to what we're dealing with now, symbolism would be the painting of Black Lives Matter um, in front of the White House. I live in D.C. We went down there. We saw it. It was extremely powerful, symbolically so. Um, but the painting of Black Lives Matter there doesn't in and of itself do anything to alter society in a way that makes an intervention with respect to structural racism. So that would be structural change. And so um, both are important. Uh, uh, symbolic change is often um, easier uh, than structural change. It's often more uh, palatable, you know, for those who are in power in positions of power uh, than structural change. Uh, if it exists on its own with no structural change to follow, then its impact, while not notable, will likely fade. Uh, so you've got to have both of them. Agreed. Uh, there has been, and this is where things start to get a little more complicated, there has been a little bit of pushback uh, among some of the players uh, who have felt a little bit, um, I don't want to say slighted, but not included in, in a necessarily positive way. Uh, LeBron James is a particular uh, high-profile example. Um, Boston Celtics uh, shooting guard and vice president of the Players Association, Jalen Brown, has also expressed his displeasure, as has Marcus Smart. I just wanted to, to get your... Um, Feedback on that particular situation. So, yeah, no, it's interesting. And I think, you know, the NBA was the first league, I think, that came that came out and said, hey, we're going to put names. On, we're going to pursue this idea of putting names on jerseys. I think Major League Soccer had already uh, decided that their players would, would wear Black Lives Matter shirts. But um, I don't know that any league had decided it was going to do that. The NFL then followed. Um, and so it was obviously, I mean, it was a, it was a huge uh, development when it first came out. And then it became clear, well, there's actually a preset number of things, names or actually not names, right, in the NBA, not names, but messages that can go on the back of the shirts. Um, and that did rub people um, uh, the wrong way. And I think it did so, Justin, because, um, again, this moment we're in is so unique it is the first time I think for many black people in their lives that they have felt truly heard and maybe an exaggeration for some, for some, I don't think it is. And so when you get the position, you're in the position now for the first time where you can be truly heard and you can say kind of what you're thinking, but you can't say exactly what you want to say. 
I think that's the angst that these guys are feeling. I think these guys are feeling like, hey, this is the time. This is the time I want to have my voice in full throat, exactly what I want to say. And I just don't feel right about having to choose as among 12 or 16 messages that you think are appropriate. Now, the messages that um, I read the list of messages the NBA has approved, and they're strong messages. There's nothing weak about those messages. But there's something about using one's own voice, I think, that's powerful, particularly in this moment. I think those players you mentioned are reacting to an inability under the NBA's policy to to do that. Now, I think some of that is, again, related to a a lot of the bumpiness of the various aspects that have kind of created some friction with this restart, um, even up to the point of restarting at all in the first place. And that is to do with the representational structure of, of the union and how it interacts with the NBA. Uh, my understanding of what goes on in the NBA's union is that it's mostly driven by committees and not by like direct rank and file voting. And so a lot of things just, you know, for the ease of getting things done, um, above democracy tends to kind of streamline to committees these decisions. Which I have to say is not, is not atypical for sports unions. Yeah, yeah. So now I know you, you, you wrote on the NFL. Um, how does their union work in comparison? Same sort of thing. Same, Same sort, sort of thing. thing. I mean, there's, a, there's an executive committee um, and then there's a board of, you know, there's one representative from each team, so 32 reps on that board. And so there's decision-making power there, but a polling of all the rank-and-file members um, is an extraordinarily rare thing. Um, that's what I, they ended up having to do that to vote on the CBA that just passed. I think 51.5% of the players voted in favor, so it passed. But for much of what's done, each club's representative is deemed as presenting the perspective of all the players on the club. Okay, interesting. Cam, what are, what are your thoughts on this uh, Jersey situation? Do you have any feelings about it? Sure. I think uh, it's pretty obviously very safe for the league to, to handle this. Um, and it's safe for the players' union to sign off on that. Uh, what I mean by that is twofold. Uh, we've seen since uh, protests and movements and all of this has happened over the past however many weeks and months it's been now, that public polling of... Black Lives Matter has changed radically, which is a long time coming, as far as I'm sure we're all concerned. Uh, but what that means is for corporate America, it became very safe and easy to kind of whitewash this, this movement and this phrase. We saw, I don't know how many emails I got from AutoZone standing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And that's important. It's important that powerful entities and figures lend their voice and their platforms. Of course it is. But it also became something pretty easy for any business to latch onto and to obviously almost feel obliged, I would imagine. And so for the NF, uh, the NBA rather to include black lives matter messaging on their court and this list of pre-approved messages, it doesn't feel like too much of a stretch. It feels like uh, a league that has been player driven for a long time, uh, knowing that it needs to work with its players. So it wasn't going to stop the NBA players from wearing the I can't breathe shirts um, when Derek Rose started that after the death of Eric Garner. Um, and so this time around, it certainly wasn't going to stop the Toronto Raptors from showing up with a Black Lives Matter bus. So I, I don't think the league is really doing anything brave here. I think it's working with its player culture. 
Um, and to that end, I, I don't think that the Players Association is being that brave here. I think uh, what the players do individually, uh, what we've seen uh, in leading protests and making massive donations and writing essays, the ways that individual players have acted uh, is really brave and, and maybe bordering on unsafe because they are the in and of themselves brands of a sort, right? Uh, I think the PA probably saw what was happening with baseball I probably saw what has happened with the NFL and it knew to play this long-term game because maybe we'll talk about it. This COVID quote unquote bubble is a PR disaster waiting to happen in the context of black lives matter. I might add, uh, I think the PA knows it. I think the league knows it. And so for them to work with their players in a way that is meaningful in a way Jeremy, you said it right. I mean, symbolism matters. It's not nothing. Um, but there is this kind of yes and mentality that I think is appropriate. That, great, it's, I'm thankful that the league is uh, not silencing any important message or voice, mostly. But there's so much more that can and probably should be done. So it feels really safe. I, I think it's important but I, I'm waiting for a lot more. Well, you know, can I jump in on that, Cam? I, you know, sure. it's interesting Please. because the, um, it, I agree with you 100%. And um, let's go six months ago. Six months ago, you talked about how Black Lives Matter has, you know, you got AutoZone or whoever it is sending you email. Six months ago, Black Lives Matter, not only did it not have the acceptance it has now, it was almost deemed a racist statement. To say Black Lives Matter was taken as offensive, you know? And so over the course of a few months, it's gone from that to almost being faddish, you know, as right. you indicated. And so I think that's hundred percent right. And so it's, so what the NBA is doing now, six months ago would have been extraordinarily great. Right. I can agree but with that. And that it's doing it now in this totally different context. It's not as brave as you point out, Cam. And so I think that the players, I don't know that, you know, I mean, the players, likely want to do what is brave now, at least some of them. And that goes beyond the strictures of what's being proposed for so for essentially sanctioned social protest uh, within, you know, within the bubble. And so, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know if the word sanctioned and social protest, should, you know, really go together. That is to say, what sort of protest is it if the powers that be already accept that that's going to happen and, what the message is. So I think that's a really good point. What, you know, what can be done that's brave now that pushes the envelope, you know, you know, beyond where we are. Anthem protests. I think that, I mean, we have Abdul Rahim basically being forced out of the league almost uh, because of his unwillingness in the 1990s, I think it was, uh, when he refused to, to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance uh, before the games, which is really weird that they're doing this. I mean, I guess like when they play the Raptors, at least kind of makes sense. But uh, the, the notion of anthem protests, they had the whole locking of arms thing before. So you'd be protesting, but you wouldn't be protesting the flag. And I would think that even now there would be enough cover to make that okay, to make it okay if you want to take a knee now. Uh, but we haven't really heard anything about that. So that was that was one thing I think that could be potentially interesting. Um, I'm wondering if either of you have, have thought of any other ideas. I've, I've thought of one. I actually wrote about it. Um, I wrote a, a 
an op-ed that came out a week or so ago dealing with Boston, I should say, although not the Celtics as baseball. And, you know, I, 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 identif- you know, I, I, I noted that Torrey Hunter had come out and talked about how he felt he would, you know, he, how he heard the, the uh, N word while playing outfield in Fenway park. He said a hundred times, um, you know, Adam Jones, we know has talked about CC Sabathia said that basically when you go to Boston, expect that. Um, and so I actually, in the, in the column explored the possibility that perhaps players would do what they have begun to do in European soccer and simply walk off the field and end the game. Now that takes it to the next level. That basically says, okay, if I'm going to be racially disparaged, I won't play. And Hey, maybe my teammates won't play either game over. Everybody go home. The fun you came to see is not going to be here. The league schedule is thrown off. Um, does the league call it a forfeit or does it call it a cancellation forces the league to make some real important, uh, uh, decisions. So that's what I think would really push it forward. Um, you know, we'll see if anything like that comes to pass, but interrupting the play of the game and therefore the progress of the season is, you know, that's the real state. I agree. I think if they can take, uh, a, I think it was what, a 24 second shot clock violation, uh, in favor of Kobe's passing, uh, this year, I don't see any reason why they couldn't do something even like that, even if it didn't interrupt an, or end the game. And I mean, if they did do something as powerful as ending the game, I would be floored, but I, I would definitely be supportive. I think that would be a really awesome thing to see. Um, Cam, what do you think? Well, you and I, Justin, had talked about this uh, when Kyrie Irving's remarks uh, first came out that um, a general strike would actually um, make an impact, Jeremy, to your point. I think what we're learning is that the NBA and and by extension, the Players Association has decided that the platform and the the stability of trying to restart the league is either better for longitudinal change or, and this is easy for me to say from where I'm sitting, is safer. Uh, Because there was a moment, I, I think, especially at the height of these protests where we were seeing it night after night in city after city, that this idea that the NBA would kind of take its players out of their communities and bring them down to Orlando, it felt like it would stifle what could be active participation in this moment. And so you and I had talked about what if the players even talked about uh, not going down to Orlando to focus on other things. And it was talked about beyond just you and me, obviously. Um, I think what we're seeing is that the league and and LeBron, I think is a great example is they're going for something that looks like structural change that doesn't necessarily break the wheel. It just kind of changes it over time. So LeBron is, uh, this is maybe an unfair analogy is maybe LeBron is more like Joe Biden and what Kyrie was offering was maybe more like Bernie Sanders, much more systematic change. So I think what the league is offering and it seems to, buy into, and and it's very commendable, I'm not knocking it one way or the other, is we can make change while continuing to play basketball, we can make change slowly and systematically. And there was this moment, and Jeremy, to your point, I think it would be much more powerful, at least in the moment, uh, of, hey, what if we really pumped the brakes here? And what if we really advocated for change in this moment? Um, So I don't think Jersey slogans, I don't think an anthem protest does much other than continue a conversation. Um, 
a conversation that is muddied and drowned out quite often. I think unless the league can be creative or the players are creative with the power that they hold, because they hold immense power in this calculus, uh, it's going to be a slow burn as opposed to any sort of real inflection point. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think you mentioned Kyrie Irving and it was an interesting point he made. Um, you know, there's nothing you have to deal with the contract of it, but you know, people do walk away from the game. And I think that um, that would make quite a statement as well. The game could go on, but without them. Now I know we're talking about the NBA, but I think we have to look at Maya Moore and the WNBA and what she did. I mean, that is one of the most notable movements that an athlete, a star athlete has made in recent history to basically say, I'm not playing this year. I'm focusing on social um, activism. And this, of course, she did before this whole movement began. Um, And so, uh, you know, if a a player, you know, Maya Moore, for those of your listeners who don't follow the WNBA, is top-level elite star. And if you had top-level elite star, you know, a Steph Curry, a LeBron, a KD, um, one of these guys saying, you know what, I'm going to take the year off. I'm going to focus on um, social activism. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the symbol that that would send, you know, the signal that would send, the symbol that would be would be extraordinary. And quite frankly, it's unfortunate that 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 women's basketball does not have the platform it should in this country because it's an extraordinary league, great game. If it did, then what Maya Moore did would be at the front of everybody's minds as to what you do in this, you know, what you can do as an athlete to exhibit power in this moment. Not to give the NBA the short shrift because it does have plans for structural change. Um, or structural interventions, I should say. Though some of them I think are kind of you know, a, a wink and a promise uh, in terms of increasing uh, black representation within um, institutions. Now, in the league offices, I'm sure they can do this, but in terms of real positions of power within teams, they're all their own island in terms of how they do their thing, their private entities. So, I mean, there's little they can do that they won't vote themselves into doing in the first place to, to, to further that. So it's really just a promise. But they have talked about forming a foundation to expand educational and economic development opportunities in the black community um, and to give preferential um, or at least greater inclusion uh, of black owned and operated businesses uh, working with the NBA. But it seems to me that they could they could do more. Um, What what are some thoughts? I mean, there are some um, there was a great video that was discussing this with former Celtic Kendrick Perkins and Amina Hassan of ESPN. Um, talking about the difference and the importance of both symbolic and structural change. Um, And he brought up the case of the North Carolina bathroom bill and how quickly they got that crushed. I mean, they did have the the, um, All-Star game scheduled to be in North Carolina, which is a great way to put some pressure. But just some thoughts along that kind of idea. Yeah, you know, for me, um, I do. I mean, I do think, first of all, let me say for your listeners, you know, it's, We've talked about the NBA, um, the, the actions taken, at least symbolically, not being as brave as they could be. I will say that over the course of the last five years, decade, the NBA has been the most progressive of the major sports leagues in this country. I think we have to give them credit for that. I think the way they handled Sterling out there uh, in California was emblematic of that. I think Silver has been some, some strong commitment. Um, I think that one, you know, one area where it doesn't solve all the problems, but – 
um, it is both symbolic and structural, Justin, is ownership. And, you know, I really think, as you pointed out, the NBA can't tell clubs what to do. Clubs are their own entities. Um, But the NBA, the collection of clubs that make up the NBA together end up voting with respect to who can ultimately own a team. And the team itself gets sold from one club uh, to, uh, or from one owner to someone else. And the league can take the, make the effort. I don't know if it's doing it or not. Um, and you all may, and if you and if you know, please let me know. But you know, you can be, you know, it's a this is a big economic expenditure to buy an NBA team, right? So not everybody can do it, but there are people of color who have the means to do it and who may be interested. But they are not part of the club. They've not been at the cocktail parties. They're not part of the you know the high society folks who may currently be owners. Um, and so the league can t- can cultivate folks who might be interested in owning a team and introduce them to the league, bring them to some of the major annual events that the league hosts, introduce them to owners, even when no team is on the market, such that when a team is on the market, you've got a few people of color who now have learned the business of the league and are and, start, and know some people in the league and are positioned potentially to make a winning bid. So that's something I think the, NFL, the NBA uh, could certainly do. That's actually really brilliant. Kim, any thoughts? Yeah, I well, first of all, I have no umbrage with that idea. I love that. I think, especially now with new money coming in, I mean, there's so many tech people coming in. Uh, there, there's a real opportunity of the changing of the guard. It's not necessarily old money and kind of local money. It's uh, people who made their money in the 21st century. And uh, if you look at Steve Ballmer buying the forum for $400 million, I mean, it, it is a huge investment to buy an NBA team, but there are ownership groups that are much more fleet footed with the way they spend their money. And so the league, you know, the, the I think we could talk about this for hours, but the way uh, cities uh, subsidize their teams, that could change the way that ownership groups could be quote unquote taxed to invest in those communities, this, that, and the other. I mean, it's pretty telling that there's the Utah jazz. I mean, there's not so much uh, loyalty to one location among ownership groups and that could change. Um, I think, you know, what, I'm still really caught up in whether or not the league should be participating in playing basketball right now in Orlando. And my, my gut sense is it's increasingly immoral. Uh, so in, in terms of symbolic versus structural, I don't see the NBA doing too much to advance kind of the understanding of COVID safety among the general population. If it's happening, I haven't seen it and I follow the NBA closely enough. Um, So that's interesting to me that the NBA is about to embark on this COVID quote unquote bubble and about to use an incredible amount of resource that increasingly the rest of the country does not have. And I don't see the NBA pushing awareness or education or material um, in a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting black and brown Americans. So in the, in this moment and the immediate future, I would love to see the NBA do things that are symbolic and structural right now, because I, I think I'm showing my cards. I don't think it's particularly ethical to resume the league to, for the league to take a billion dollar bath to make sure that its owners and its players make more money. Um, I would love for them to take a billion dollar bath on securing face masks and testing sites and things like that. Uh, what I'm noticing, for example, and I, I was reading earlier, the, the league dropped their testing partner. 
a company called Quest Diagnostics. Uh, and shortly thereafter, Quest Diagnostics let it known that they can't get tests turned around quickly enough. Um, and now they have a new partner called BioReference, which is increasingly having its own partnership problems. I, I mean, uh, testing problems, excuse me. It's not getting tests out fast enough. And I haven't seen any reporting that suggests the MBA is doing anything to support that. This is an entertainment product. We, we should only demand so much from the MBA as an institution. We should demand a lot more from a lot of other more powerful entities in our country. But uh, while we're talking about this vague idea of racial equality in this country, or equity rather, this moment seems like a, a light has really been shined on the way that different Americans experience uh, daily life, uh, uh, specifically under this COVID umbrella. And I don't see the NBA doing anything about it. So great, great with the jerseys again. I mean, not to hark on only that. And it is great. Some of the things that Jeremy, you've proposed and Justin, some of the things that you've mentioned the league is doing, but man, I, I can't shake the COVID thing. And there's something, there's just a lot of stench that's coming from it. That feels weird. Um, and a lot of that stench as we know, and is bigger than this podcast has a lot to do with racial, uh, injustice in the American experience. And I don't see the league making a move on that. So a lot of this stuff feels performative when there's something real within uh, the league's reach that they're not seemingly not touching. Yeah. Can make strong points. You know, I mean, these are strong points. It's, um, you know, you know, the, you know, the counters that people have made, uh, you know, it's, I think doc rivers made the point that, Hey, you know, we, I think in response to what Kyrie had originally said is, Hey, you know, we go down there and we're going to be able to, you know, we're going to be on TV every night. So we'll be able to make comments and uh, about racial injustice and further push the, the agenda. Um, and, you know, other people would say that at a moment, you know, when COVID is ravaging us, we need our opportunity to see things that are good and fun and sports gives us that, um, you know, that escape, but Cam's points are powerful. And I think Trump, those, um, I think that it's, um, you know, these are serious times. These are serious times. Uh, and maybe the time is not right for, uh, you know, the NBA to return considering all that's involved in that return. Now, um, is, it, is it your view, Cam, that is, do you have the same view about MLS and, Major League Baseball and everything and all the other leagues. Yeah, well, I so I've I've said this before. I think what baseball is doing is probably more immoral. I mean, they're moving people around the country. I don't want residents of the Boston community to fly down to Florida just to play baseball. That doesn't seem very COVID safe. Uh, but to peel it back and and make it more pragmatic, it's going to be harder to contact trace how much they spread COVID. I think what the NBA is sitting on is a disaster waiting to happen because all of these people who live in Orlando or around Orlando who are being asked to come in and service these NBA players, it's going to be really obvious when or if one of these people brings COVID in or takes COVID out. Um, and so to, more broadly, I think May and June, maybe the country was really feeling itself and we thought we're ready for sports. And the seriousness of the situation in late June and July should have commanded everyone to say, hold on, we got to pump the brakes and we got to double and triple down on our attention and our resource being spent on this COVID thing. And we obviously haven't done that. And so sports is full steam ahead. 
so broadly speaking, if when I'm in power, uh, I would pause all of this stuff because yeah, we do need a, a cultural win. I mean, we need some good news, but I don't think Houston and, and Miami need baseball or soccer right now. So uh, from a macro perspective, I do think sports are an, a way to spread the disease and at the very least a way to distract us from where our attention ought to be. Um, in the context of the NBA, I think they're really fighting with some PR fire when we're wondering, is their PR good enough? Um, so I think they have an opportunity to do some real good, even if they don't pause the league, but to use the league as a, a way for us to reimagine how important we think COVID is. Um, and I don't see them doing that. So I think Justin opened the show by saying, you know, there's two parallel tracks. And I like that you, uh, Jeremy, said it so simply. These are serious times. We have two very serious things happening in our country that are very intertwined. Um, we have this kind of existential crisis about race relations in this country alongside a nearly unprecedented pandemic, at least in uh, modern memory. So the way that the NBA handles this stuff is not easy, but I suspect it's not doing enough. Seems like a good place to leave it. I know you have to get going, uh, Professor Duru. Um, anything else we should uh, cover before we go? No, I don't think so, man. I think you asked some great questions. Uh, you know, it's... <clears throat> I think history is going to judge us. It's going to judge all of us, the three of us, everybody else in this country, all the sports leagues and everybody else, how we dealt with this situation, you know, how we dealt with COVID, how we dealt with the systemic racism that exploded. It's been existing, but really exploded onto the scene and into the consciousness of many who hadn't even really thought about it in the spring of 2020 and how we dealt with the two of these coming together. And so I think these are really important conversations to have. And I know our time here is limited, but I hope that each of the three of us continue to have them in our own spheres. Indeed. Anything you're working on that uh, people should be on the lookout for, either of you? You go ahead, Cam. Uh, well, uh, I put on my I hope basketball comes back hat, and I wrote about the Celtics uh, situation at the rim. So apropos of literally everything we just talked about, I think Robert Williams could help the Celtics down low, and you can read about that on CelticsHub.com. Uh, for me, um, I'm working on uh, not the most exciting project perhaps in the world, everybody, but I'm working on a, a sports law treatise um, for Carolina Academic Press. A colleague of mine, Tim Davis at Wake Forest Law School, and I just signed a contract with treatise, and so you know, that'll be fun to work on. And, um, I'm continuing to try and, and, and publish short form pieces like the piece that I published that I mentioned earlier. I published a piece before that, a couple weeks before that, uh, in The Undefeated um, about, uh, you know, the, the power that college athletes are showing in this moment. That was at the very beginning when you had uh, Marvin Wilson down at Florida State saying he wouldn't play based on some of the things his coach said and the players in Missouri doing various things. So. Just trying to do what I can to, you know, to, to write about this stuff and hopefully make uh, an impact. I often feel like I'm not doing, you know, doing enough, but I guess we all have to play our role and do our best. Indeed. Well, you can find the pod on most podcatcher apps. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. If you don't like something or have a suggestion, just let us know with a comment on Twitter with the hashtag CLPOD. We are always trying to bring you the deepest dives into Celtics coverage. And anytime you want to come back to talk about whatever, Professor Duro, just let us know. Hey, love to be back. Thank you. Thanks for coming on.
Take care, y'all.